Hi there and welcome to the podcast for Thursday, December the 17th. Coming up, we'll talk about those Canadian Revenue Agency letters and paying back all that CERB. Two Canadian companies merged to create the world's largest cannabis company. And Canada's housing market continues to defy the pandemic with home sales and prices nearing record highs. All of that coming up right now on the pod. Well, nearly half a million Canadians have received a so-called education letter from the Canadian Revenue Agency regarding their CERB. And the message is essentially, you have received this money, you have received this relief in error, and you must pay it back, preferably by the end of the year, which, by the way, is just a matter of days away. Doug uh, Hoyes is a a licensed insolvency trustee. He's on the line and joins us now with more of this here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Doug, good afternoon. How are you? I'm well. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate you joining us. Uh, First of all, can you explain this letter a little more for us? I mean, why is the government telling some uh, CERB recipients that they owe the money back? Yeah, I like the way they refer to it as an education letter when it's really a give us the money back letter. But the the issue is that to qualify for CERB, you had to have had income of $5,000 either last year on your 2019 tax return or in the last 12 months before you applied for CERB. So a lot of people applied and and didn't have that much income. Or what I think has happened in a lot of cases is people were self-employed. So they put down, yeah, my gross income was uh, $20,000 last year, but I had $18,000 worth of expenses. So my net income was only $2,000. Well, the CERB was based on net income, not gross income. So there were a bunch of people who thought they qualified and CRA is now saying, nope, sorry, you didn't have enough income. You didn't qualify. And that's why they sent out almost half a million letters to those people. Yeah, also uh, double payments. We saw that in the news uh, a few weeks or a month or so ago that uh, some people were receiving payments in error. Yes, and I think that was a different letter because I've seen (laughs) different versions of the letter. So that first letter that you're referring to came out in August that said, oh, yeah, you applied with CRA and you also applied with the EI system through Service Canada. Sorry, our system didn't talk to each other, so you were able to double dip. You got to give that extra payment back. And I think everyone agrees with that. Okay, I know it was $2,000 a month, so if I got $4,000 for one month, obviously I got money that I wasn't qualified for. So there's those two categories at least for people who the government will be asking for the money back. All right. And speaking of asking for that money, there is a bit of a time frame here. I mean, how uh, regimented are they on folks having to pay this back by December 31, by the end of the year? Because that's not a lot of time. Yeah, what we're hearing is they're not very regimented at all. What they're saying is, look, if you've got the money sitting there, if you know you owe it, pay it back before the end of December. No harm, no foul. That way we don't have to issue you a T-slip. It has no effect on your taxes. Everybody's good. Now, I agree with you. There's only a few days left in the year. If I ended up getting $10,000 that I didn't qualify for, it's going to be pretty hard for me to just write a check and give it back. So what will happen is they will issue some kind of T-slip. It won't be a T-4, but a T-something or other that will appear on your taxes when you file your your 2020 taxes next spring, and you will either be required to pay taxes on the CERB you received, or if you weren't eligible for it, then you'll be required to pay the whole thing back. Now, how much time are they going to give you? Are they going to charge you interest? Are there going to be penalties? At this point, we have no idea. They haven't announced any of that yet. Okay, that was my very next question. If uh, you're deferring this to your next tax uh, return, your next tax season, uh, we all know when you don't pay your taxes on time, the interest is pretty exorbitant, but we just don't have an answer right now. 
Yeah, the the rule has always been you have to file your taxes and pay your taxes by April 30th in order not to be hit with any kinds of penalties. If I had to guess, and this is pure speculation, so I'm sure I'll be totally wrong in what I'm telling you, Jeff, but if I had to guess, I suspect the government will say, okay, we're going to put some special accommodation here. There'll be a, an extra period of time before we'll start charge, charging interest. I mean, they did it this year. You were able to file your taxes after the deadline and not incur penalties. So they may say, okay, fine. So long as you work out some kind of repayment plan with us, then you won't get hit with um, additional penalties and interest. But again, that's pure speculation on my part. All right. What if you can't, particularly right now, repay this CERB? Uh, What is your best advice to people? Is it to get in touch with the Canadian Revenue Agency, at least start a dialogue, let them know uh, what your situation is? Yes, absolutely. I think being open is the best policy always. So you you get in touch with them and say, look, I, I... I guess, number one, did I actually qualify? Because there's people who got this letter who did qualify. Okay, so provide the documentation they need to show that you did have sufficient income. Everything's good. So for a lot of people, this problem will go away. But if you legitimately didn't qualify or you double-dipped, then yes, I would get in touch with CRA and say, look, I can't write you a check today, but can I work out some kind of payment plan? Can I pay it back to you over a period of time? If you can do that, again, you're probably going to be good. We're starting to field a lot of calls from people now who not only have this, this tax problem, but they've got other issues. They've used credit to survive during the pandemic. And that's when it's like, well, okay, maybe you need to be sitting down with a licensed insolvency trustee to see if a bigger solution is necessary, which is why I'm thinking, well, maybe by the spring or summer next year, we'll start to see a bit of an uptick in personal bankruptcies to deal with some of these issues. Yeah, just finally, Doug, are you surprised that we're here, that uh, we're finding some Canadians in this situation? Because the CRA, they keep some pretty good records, and they should basically know what people's incomes uh, are. Are you surprised or maybe not so surprised because there was a rush to get uh, relief to people who really needed it, particularly during the first wave? Yeah, I'm not surprised at all. You're right. This was done very quickly, and I think we all agreed. If the government is going to shut everything down, then it made sense that they would be helping people pay their rent and buy groceries. So I don't think anyone objects to the fact that they did it quickly, but the rules were not very clear right off the bat because it was done so quickly. And because there were two different application methods through CRA and through the EI system, and those two systems obviously didn't talk to each other as well as perhaps they should have, um, this is the inevitable result. So now we spend the next few months uh, doing whatever we can to deal with it. All right. Well, some good and important information, particularly for those that have received the CERB. Doug, thanks so much for this. Appreciate it, and have a great holiday. Thanks, Jeff. You too. Thank you. Doug Hoyes is a licensed insolvency trustee. Rob, Mary, can I just take a second here and update you both on my digital fitness challenge, which continues. Today is day two. How's it going? Not well. Oh, no. No. I can barely, Rob, look, do this. I, I can oh, barely get hurts, my eh? arms yeah. uh, like parallel to my body right now. I, you know <laughs> what, what it you is, do? Mary? What I, did you I do? feel like the I feel like the Tin Man. Can somebody come here and oil me, please? Oh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, You're working too hard, Jeff. You're working too hard. That's exactly what happened. I always keep olive oil in my bag if you need me to <laughs> rub you down or something. Whoa. <laughs> Okay, anyways, uh, this digital fitness challenge. <laughs> okay, I'm taking on uh, the producer, our producer over on the TV side, uh, David Goldberg. He challenged me to this, as I mentioned uh, yesterday. So yesterday was uh, day one. And basically, they track your heart rate and your calories uh, burned. And you can uh, look on your digital device to see how each other are doing. 
So I go home last night, right? And I'm looking, and Goldberg is like, I don't know, 15% ahead of me at this point. So I decide, you know what? I'm getting up off the couch. That's it. I don't care. It's 730 at night. Normally I would not do this, but uh, I do a HIT workout. Nice. One of those. What? High-intensity interval training deals. Oh, okay. You weren't hitting anything. No, just uh, it's like 30 minutes of just slogging away and sweating. And uh, anyways, I do this. I'm tracking my results. And lo and behold, when I'm done, I'm like 5% ahead of goal. Nice. Yes. Way to go. Way to go. Yeah, I'm sitting at 132% of my goal. So I've achieved 32% more than I need to on a daily basis. Yeah. And I'm roughly, as I mentioned, like 5% ahead of him. So I hit bed around 9.30 last night, like an hour later, because I'm just dead tired after. Uh, I did that. I did weights during the day. I was climbing the stairs back and forth here in the building and all this. Well, I wake up this morning and I check the results. Goldberg, this is how cunning this guy is. He got up like at 10 o'clock, saw the results, and he did 30 minutes of cardio. <laughs> he beat me by like a good 12%. I love it. I love it that you're keeping tabs and then, oh, he's up? Well, I'm going to do something. Oh, my gosh. And then he rode his bike. And then he rode his bike to work. That's right. Yes. It was sunny. It was beautiful. Because he rides his bike uh, back and forth to work, so he's already ahead of me when it comes to the calorie count and oh. heart rate. It's I'm beaten. I, I just, everywhere I turn, I just, I can't beat this guy. You got to remember to stretch. You'll too. do it. You got to remember to stretch. That's why your arms aren't working. I, you know what? I just got up uh, to go down the hallway during the news. And if you sit for an extended period of time, you know, when you've overextended yourself, everything seizes yep. up. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I might wa- wave the white flag pretty quickly. <laughs> only day this. two, man. Come on. I know it's only day two. All right. As I mentioned, Laura DeSanctis, our wellness expert, she is coming up in about 15 minutes. But first, let's get to some big news in the cannabis world. Because two Canadian companies have come together to form to create the world's largest cannabis company. And for more on this, we're joined now by Mitchell Osak. He is the CEO of Quanta Consulting Incorporated. He's on the line and joins us now here on Global News Radio. Mitchell, how are you, sir? Great, Jeff. Super to be here. All right. Good to have you here, as always. Uh, Tell us about these uh, two companies. Who are they and why have they decided to join forces, Mitchell? So the two firms are Afria and Tilray. They're two Canadian licensed producers that were around when cannabis was legalized in Canada back in 2018. They would be considered among top 10 licensed producers in Canada. And what's interesting is that they um, have very strong synergies between their between their respective firms and they've decided to come together and to to go forth as a larger more sophisticated entity both competing in Canada as well as in Europe and hopefully in the United States in the next couple of years all right so they made a conscious decision obviously that uh, they just weren't big enough on their own to uh, compete uh, globally or, or maybe even in the Canadian uh, marketplace Mitchell Well, I think it's a combination of both. Um, They're both successful. Afria recently has been more successful than Tilray. But the reality in Canada is that we have too many licensed producers. We have too much inventory. And all of this product and all of these companies are competing for a finite, finite share of the market. At the same time, we see the United States and Europe growing, both in terms of sales and legalization. And if Canadian companies are going to compete globally. They're going to have to compete at scale. And one way to achieve this scale, particularly quickly, are for great companies to merge, and that's what we're seeing right now. 
Okay, I hear you there, but is this good news or is this bad news for the cannabis consumer in Canada overall? Because I'm thinking about telecommunications and, of course, the uh, long-time age-old complaint is that we've got too few providers and uh, players. There's not real competition and that Canadian consumers uh, suffer because of that and pay some of the uh, most exorbitant internet and cell phone uh, rates uh, in the world. Is that where the cannabis business perhaps is going? Um, no, and don't forget bank fees. Uh, yes. I'm the first person to, to criticize uh, Canadian government policy around a lack of competition in a lot of sectors. Fortunately for the Canadian consumer, as well as the Canadian cannabis industry, this merger goes nowhere in terms of hurting the Canadian consumer, as well as reducing competition. I'll just throw out a couple of facts for you. The merged entity doesn't even achieve 20% of the total market share today of the legal Canadian market. So the largest company is barely 20%. So um, in in so many different cases, the Canadian consumer is actually going to be benefiting from a merged entity that will have more resources to develop more products, um, to lower their costs, and in turn grow better product and produce better edibles. At the same time, And again, I'll say this from an industry standpoint. If Canadians are going to take advantage of global legalization, which is happening very quickly, they're going to need to do it at scale. And why Canadians should care a lot about that is that these two companies between themselves represent 2,500 jobs, which hopefully can go up if they're able to start selling more and more product into the United States and into Europe. So net for the Canadian cannabis economy, very positive thing, and I'm hoping and I'm expecting more of these mergers to happen in 2021. All right, what about the quality? Is this going to enhance the quality? Because that's something you and I have talked about uh, in the past, and it's uh, been well known that uh, a lot of cannabis users have been somewhat uh, displeased or disappointed with the uh, quantity of cannabis or yeah, the quality, I'm sorry, of cannabis that they're receiving from uh, the government and legalized sources. Is this going to address that at all, do you think? Um, okay, so quality is in the taste is in the taste buds of the consumers. So you know, one person's high quality is another person's low quality. Having said all of that, there's nothing in this deal that particularly speaks to producing better cannabis for specific consumer segments. You are absolutely correct. But the overall trend within the Canadian cannabis industry, as well as in the United States, is generally improving quality and generally improving terpines, which is like the smell and the scent and the flavor of the cannabis. And to a great extent, that is being delivered now to the Canadian consumer from what's called craft producers. So craft producers are small growers that are licensed by the Canadian government. And much like craft wineries in the Niagara Peninsula or the Okanagan Valley, they are the ones that are producing the best quality cannabis in Canada. And their numbers are multiplying every month. So the, the, the truth of the matter is the Canadian consumer is being served with better and better cannabis all the time. It may not be coming from the largest licensed producers, but it is coming from the the craft segment. What's important for the consumer with this merger is that this gives a large company the financial scale and the wherewithal and the the technological and R&D resources to start producing other cannabis products that are more capital and technology intensive. So I'm talking about beverages and edibles and topicals and things like that. And 
those products are very difficult to be to be developed by a small craft producer. Well, that was my next question for you, sorry, Mitchell, was that uh, the uh, quality is uh, one issue, but the uh, quantity, and when we talk about uh, cannabis, we're not only talking about different strains here, but as you mentioned, edibles, uh, beverages on the horizon. This uh, merger, this uh, Canadian merger that makes this company the world's largest cannabis uh, company, this is really going to uh, help when it comes to uh, those sorts of things, that we're going to see a greater variety of uh, cannabis products than we otherwise would have? Well, that's, that's an excellent question. I don't know because I haven't seen the merger of plants uh, for this deal. Um, those would be confidential. But I will say, and to your point of about 35 seconds ago, there, we are awash with too much cannabis in this country. That is a fact. And what this deal will hopefully do, which will help the company as well as the industry, is take some cultivation capacity out of the market. We, we have too much capacity for the wrong and poor quality cannabis. And if this merger, which has promised $100 million Canadian in cost savings, if those cost savings are to be achieved, capacity will have to be taken out of the market, which means greenhouses and facilities will have to be shut down. That will generate some significant savings that these firms will be able to use to reinvest in products and in quality that people want. But in the short term, we got to get rid of some of this production because people are not buying it. And it's just upsetting too many Canadian consumers who don't want to buy dried cannabis on the shelves. All right. Uh, finally, you mentioned $100 million in savings. Here's another number. This merger is worth nearly $5 billion and, again, creates the world's largest cannabis company. So does this uh, put Canada and our cannabis uh, movement, if you will, the cannabis business in this country, uh, at the forefront of uh, cannabis in the world? Too early to tell. We were at the forefront a couple of years ago upon legalization, but our American brothers and sisters are rapidly catching up and they are germinating billion dollar unicorn cannabis companies. For Canada to keep its lead and even even try and pull ahead, we're going to need to do two things. We're going to need more concentration of cannabis companies in Canada, number one. And number two, they're going to have to be prudent but aggressive in terms of tapping international markets. This merger provides the scale that's necessary and with the right vision will allow um, Tilray, newly named Tilray, to go forth in the United States and take advantage of what's expected to be legalization in a couple of years. But it's going to take more than one deal to make that happen for Canada. All right. It's a big, big business deal and we will watch it, of course, with interest as it continues to unfold. Mitchell, really appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Jeff. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Mitchell Osak is the CEO of Quanta Consulting Incorporated. And time now for a weekly check on your wellness with wellness expert Laura DeSanctis. She's on Instagram at Go With Your Gut, and she's on your radio right now. Laura, how are you? Hi, Jeff. I'm doing well. How are you? Well, I'm a little sore. I was just mentioning this off the uh, top. I'm in the middle of this digital fitness uh, challenge, and I think I've overdone it. I've overworked. Uh, what, what do they call that? Onset muscle soreness or something? Oh, wow. Are you getting any spasms? Uh, no, no spasms. Just a lot of, like, tightness and uh, soreness. So, Laura, what should I do? You should definitely take magnesium okay. at night in a powder form or in a pill form. I would, I would suggest a powder form because it's more easily absorbable. And then... Come on, Jeff. You got to listen to your body. You know this. You got to rest. Yeah, I, I know that too, and I know that rest is as important as working out. But uh, I'm on this daily challenge now, and I can't lose. 
Are you stretching? Uh, yep, doing a little dinner. You know, here's how serious I'm taking this. I got up this morning at five and I did some yoga and I did like 20 minutes of skipping, jumping rope, which I'm sure whoever lives below me just love that. But, you know, to, to win this uh, fitness challenge, I think what we're going to do is uh, actually Rob has uh, agreed to do this. He's going to take my uh, Apple watch and uh, we're going to put it on his dog when it goes to doggy daycare. <laughs> <laughs> there'll be tons of calories burned and the heart rate will be like yeah, you wouldn't believe all right enough about me though uh we've got to take care of the people and uh, today we want to talk uh, laura about uh wellness some wellness tips that you've got that does not cost a dime which i think is a uh, perfect because uh, everybody is uh, stretched right now with the holidays upon us yep um I think really we need to be mindful of is like what are daily practices like right now? And again, they're, they can take minimal effort. They're not expensive. And these are really gentle ways to support your health when it comes to mind, body, and spirit. And we're seeing more and more of this. It's not even a trend, I think, uh, in terms of meditation. And Jeff, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. But I think meditation and really connecting to your inner self, healing, prioritizing your mental and emotional health all ties into meditation and these are things that um it doesn't cost at all anything i mean you can definitely check a meditation out on youtube or download a guide but this is a really great opportunity to align your higher self for a better quality of life and to actually rest and um, take ease of the day yeah you and i have spoken about meditation throughout the year and i have really tried to focus on that and do that and i think i mentioned to you previously that uh, my mind wanders right uh, within uh, i don't know 25 30 uh, seconds but i've found that the more you do it meditation laura is almost like a learned skill i mean you get deeper and deeper into it the more you do it yeah definitely i mean it's, it's like a muscle that you have to work just like when you're working out i mean even for you doing your challenge now jeff right like every day it will progressively get better but you really need to start dedicating even if it's a few minutes a day whether it's going into your bedroom or going outside or taking a break during the midday to avoid burnout i even like to do it in the shower for a few minutes and just think about positive thoughts or affirmations but it's definitely something that takes time and you can practice and it doesn't have to be an hour or two hours in length you can i even like using uh, the meditation apps on my phone um, whether it's a few minutes before i go to bed just to help me rest or even if i'm feeling anxious during the day but it is something where for me it's a non-negotiable but i definitely do encourage people to tune in and try to meditate and connect with your inner self you know what in the new year we're going to make it a regular feature on the show how about the 230 meditation where just sit here and meditate for like five minutes we'll see how well the boss is like that <laughs> all right another thing we can do when it comes to a self-care that does not cost a dime and i know you've talked about this time and time again is journaling journaling yes yeah. so the act of journaling is very, very powerful because you can release a lot of emotions through journaling. And it doesn't have to be, um, you know, like your to-do list for the day. What happens with journaling and a lot of people in the health and wellness industry, including myself, recommend journaling because you're releasing this stream of consciousness where there's a specific technique and you write down whatever thoughts cross your mind. And it's a way of releasing, a way of releasing the day or if you want to start journaling at the beginning of your day, it's um, help priming your day for positivity. So if there's things you really want to take on in the day or if there's things that are really going to make you feel good, you can use journaling uh, to help heal, to write out your positive thoughts and feelings or affirmations. 
I even have my own wellness journal that I created because I really believe that in the power of journaling and that it really does um, aid in self-help, self-care, self-love. Yeah, when you talk about journaling, is it digital? Can I do it on my laptop or is there something about putting pen to paper that's a little more therapeutic? I think putting pen to paper is more therapeutic, but I'm seeing more and more people even using on their notes app, like writing uh, before they go to bed at night, just their thoughts for the day on their phone. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that because there is an act of writing where, again, you're releasing your thoughts. Um, But then again, if you don't want to write or if you feel it's easier to do it on your phone, having that sense of release and getting your thoughts out will really help. All right, next on the list of things we can do when it comes to self-care that doesn't cost a dime is social media. Social media can actually be a good thing. It can be a positive. It can be a positive thing. I know this could be alarming to a lot of people, but hear me out. Um, When it comes to social media, I mean, there's good and bad. So really look for apps like Instagram where you can connect with people. Uh, You can even connect with therapists. I even know on YouTube there's a lot of uh, therapy sessions or information that therapists are providing for free when it comes to reducing your anxiety or healing traumas or pushing through overwhelming times. So look to those uh, platforms because there are a lot of positive um, elements, personalities, and content that are out there. And there is like some therapy and self-help Instagram and YouTube accounts that you can turn to as well. And, you know, here's one thing uh, when it comes to social media, and when you talk about uh, followers or friends, I mean, you're usually pretty careful in your day-to-day life, your regular life, the people you surround yourself with, right, and the friends uh, that you make. And maybe the same thing should apply to to social media, because then when you go on there, then all of a sudden maybe it's uh, overall a more positive or affirming uh, situation. Yeah, correct. And, I mean, just as we are mindful of what we eat, I always like to – Uh, tell people be mindful of what you consume and what you consume is even on your social media feeds, right? So if you find that there's people or personalities or accounts that aren't really making you feel good, then unfollow them. We have the power to control what we bring in and what we uh, release from our lives. You bet. And uh, finally on your list of things that do not cost a dime when it comes to self-care is just uh, give yourself a break. Take a break. Break. I think this is a big one for a lot of us. I mean, it's been a very hard year, no doubt about that, but keeping our mental health in check, giving ourselves a break if we don't have a pressing deadline or if we don't have to be on Zoom or doing any live things. Um, allow yourself to go for a walk or shut off your computer or shut off your technology for a little bit so you can de-stress. And really, I mean, I, I'm a big proponent of listening to your body. So if you're feeling very tired or anxious, maybe listen to a really nice relaxing music or therapy sounds on YouTube or on an app. Um, and also, I mean, we recommend moving. Anyone in the health and wellness industry will tell you, like, movement is key. So spending time sitting down all day in front of your desk or in front of your computer or on the couch is definitely not helpful to your health. In fact, it's detrimental. So getting up and going for a walk in your neighborhood or going outside, moving, doing a workout at home, or even like you did, Jeff, skipping for 20 minutes today or 10 minutes or even doing yoga, considering that and remembering to move your body is key because we hold a lot of tension, stress, and trauma in our body. So we want to make sure we release that through movement. Yeah, it's funny. My Apple Watch, it reminds you to move, and uh, no word of a lie, I did a hit workout last night at 7.30 just so I could gain some extra points in this challenge, and I was bagged. I had a big uh, jug of water with me. I sat down on the couch, and within 30 seconds, the thing was telling me to move again. (laughs) It's like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Anyways, Laura, some great tips as always. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jeff.
All right, be well. There goes our wellness expert, Laura DeSanctis. Find her on Instagram at go with your gut. Okay, Toronto has voted in favor of a vacant home tax. Obviously, the hope here is that instead of investors holding on to rental units, to to condos or even homes, that this will now force them to put them uh, on the market and help uh, maybe ease pricing and also uh, ease the uh, lack of homes uh, for people in this uh, city. For more on this and to discuss some other real estate news, here's our buddy Frank Leo. He's on the line and joins us now here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Frank, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you today? Yeah, I'm well, thanks. Uh, yeah, let's talk about this uh, vacant home tax. Uh, is that the the theory, the idea here, if you start taxing uh, investors, they'll eventually just put the, these homes on the market? I think it's uh, it's a great idea. I don't think it's as vast as people think it is, and it's not much money there in the in the end. But it will discourage investors from investing in in Toronto. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing because uh, we want our prices uh, of our homes to go keep going up, don't we? For sure. But uh, how is this actually going to work? Uh, do we know how are they going to determine whether or not uh, a place is vacant or if it's actually being occupied? Um. It, that's a challenge. I mean, the cost of enforcement may be more than what they end up making. Yeah, w- without a doubt. I mean, we've talked about in, uh, this in other areas uh, as well. Uh, you know, you bring these policies in, but then again, how are you going to enforce them? So uh, at the end of the day, uh, what do you believe this is going to do to the uh, supply and to the market? I don't think it's going to cause too much of a, of, a, of a difference. I don't think there's that many places that are vacant. Properties in Toronto are quite expensive from a, you know, a country perspective. And so for someone to buy a property and, and leave it empty it wouldn't be by choice. It would be by necessity, so they couldn't find someone to occupy it. But um, we don't find many vacant properties. We have people who are trying to do some Airbnbs, and they were vacant at times. So that, uh, I don't think, applies. Um, but uh, for the most part, there aren't that many vacant units. There are investors who are buying brand new developments and hoping that you know bringing some investment to the country three, four years down the road, and it might take them some time to rent them out. But um, I don't think it's as big a problem as people are making it out to be. All right, here with uh, Frank Leo from uh, Remax, uh, from Franklin, Frank Leo and Associates, sorry, at Remax West Realty. Also wanted to talk to you, Frank, this afternoon about Canada's housing market, which really kind of continues to defy the pandemic with the home sales and prices uh, nearing record highs. Uh, what's the latest when it comes to the housing market overall? It's been going very strong throughout the year, and I think that's because our home has become so important to us. It's not only our home, it's our office, it's our daycare, it's our vacation spot, it's it's everything to us. And so if you're going to you know, invest some money where you can't invest it anywhere else. All the stores are closed. You can't go on holidays. The home is the place to invest it. Yeah. Are you shocked or surprised by this? Because I think a lot of people felt when the pandemic uh, first hit that uh, housing sales just really weren't going to be there. And I think a lot of people were worried that maybe the value of their home was going to go down, at least in the, the short term. And how tough is it to sell in this market when you can't have things like a traditional open house? Well, I, I haven't been doing open houses for about 20 years, so you don't have to have an open house, but this is, uh, pandemic has caused everyone not to have open houses. Um, but in terms of the values of homes going up, I mean, it's, it's, it's important that people, you know, invest in something, and the home has been a great product to, to have for your, for your retirement, for everything. So um, it's, it's, it, it's a surprise because our incomes were supposed to go down if we're not working. 
But that hasn't happened. The government stepped up. They've given us um, aid from uh, at least a short-term perspective. So the concern is, is not if housing prices will go up, if the aid will continue. All right. Well, Canada's housing market is uh, holding up uh, despite the pandemic. Uh, what are you forecasting? Uh, what are you seeing uh, for next year into 2021? Is this going to continue? Well, the need for a home is still there. Absolutely. I mean, people, are, we can't live outside. It's too cold. So <laughs> we, we have to uh, have a home. And I think that because we can't, um, you know, uh, go away we, we, and we can't work at our offices all the time right now. So the home is still very important. And the fact that we can also move further away from our office or our workplace, so there's more reach, more space to grow, and and you can go further out and work there. I think uh, homes are still going to be moving uh, because of the adjustment to our needs. All right. Well, it's uh, good news for the Canadian housing market, somewhat uh, surprising to some uh, with the uh, pandemic uh, still uh, as we're in the uh, thick of the uh, second wave. Frank Leo, Frank, appreciate the time as always. All the best to you for a safe and happy holiday. Jeff, same to you. Thank you so much for the call. All right. Appreciate it. There goes uh, Frank Leo.